0: Hi, my name is Tom Green. I'm the CEO of Vesta, and I beat the often path by leading an organization with a mission to help reverse climate change and add to coastal resilience.
1: Welcome back to the Beat the Often Path podcast. I'm your host, Ross Palmer, and Tom Green is joining us today, and he is the CEO of Project Vesta. Oof, this, folks, is a good episode, trust me. Project Vesta is harnessing the natural power of the oceans to remove excess CO2 from the atmosphere. Well, you probably don't know this because I sure didn't, but the Earth has long sequestered carbon through the oceans in a really fascinating process, and Tom has found a way, based on decades of prior scientific research, to accelerate this process using a common mineral, a.k.a. help us remove all of this excess carbon from the atmosphere. Now, he's a smart guy. He has a BA from Oxford and an MBA from Harvard, and his personal career journey is just remarkable. Today, Project Vesta has received millions in funding and is one of the most exciting and novel solutions to climate change that I've personally heard yet. So, here's Tom Green of Project Vesta. Well, welcome to the show, Tom Green. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here uh, you have done some remarkable things in your life from rising through the ranks of academia to two little institutions that we might have heard of called Oxford and Harvard. No big deal, right? And now you're doing something <laughs> incredibly profound with the knowledge that you've gained. So I'm very happy to have you on the show today.
0: Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: I think one of the themes that we're going to be discussing at length today is something that I, I grabbed from one of your materials Which is how do we take the theoretical and how do we make it practical? How do we transcend the lab and theory and how do we turn that into real world solutions? And it appears that both the company and the project you're trying to build and your life's arc as a whole are following that principle. Is that something that you would agree with?
0: Absolutely. You know, when I graduated from university back in, back in 99, I had experimented with the idea of becoming a scientist myself and pursuing a career in science. And having spent a little bit of time doing that in a lab, I became somewhat disillusioned with the world of academia. Now, scientists are incredible people and they work very hard, often for very little financial reward to advance human knowledge. And at the same time, so much of what scientists do stays stuck in the lab. And that's what we saw when we founded Vesta, was that there was a body of scientific knowledge that had been established into this way to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, but it was it was stuck in academia. The clear next step that scientists have been calling for in their research papers was to execute field trials of this process. And there wasn't any real progress towards that. And so something that I and the rest of my team are passionate about is bringing the theory and bringing the lab tests of coastal enhanced weathering into the field and actually trying it out to see how well it works.
1: Well, that's that's a very profound thing, and I, I love this because we have to get into a lot of nuance right at the outset here, because there's a subset of the larger population that doesn't believe in science, they don't believe in what scientists are doing, there's another subset that believes entirely, and there is a more nuanced approach where you say, yes, these are incredible people working thanklessly, often for very little money, but there are issues with academia, and I, I would also number myself among that bunch where there are some things that I've seen, and I haven't gone to nearly the extent that you have, but in my own academic experience, I have found some limitations to the world of academia. And I love the idea that we're able to respect science and the field while commenting that there are perhaps some issues in the way things are done. So without attacking these institutions, which I'm sure you have no intent of doing— what are some of the general issues with science and academia and why is it tough for these things to transcend the lab or theoretical?
0: Well, there's a different set of things that need to happen to take a to take a promising idea and and bring it into practice versus the things that need to happen to understand it better from a knowledge point of view. And this has been this this journey has been much better established in the field of uh, in the field of medicine so you have a lot of basic research going on into um, into potential therapeutics and then there's very well established processes for spinning those out into into commercial uh, development in order to actually create drugs and other therapeutics which can help a lot of people so that that's something that we have as a society figured out how to do But outside of that arena, there are a lot of areas where that bridge hasn't been built yet. And so what what we're trying to do with Vesta is to build that bridge, to have academic scientists or former academic scientists on our staff who understand the science deeply and who can do that in the context of a mission-driven organization that wants to make a difference in the world as, frankly, as rapidly as we can responsibly do. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to chart that course, not just for this field of coastal carbon capture, which obviously I need to explain what that is, but Absolutely. we're trying to chart that course in general and and maybe show a way to bringing these excellent ideas and this, and this great research into practice so it can have an impact.
1: Yeah, I completely agree. And I'll I'll get into that. I do want to go on a quick personal tangent. So in my experience, I graduated with an English literature degree, which means I was training to be homeless from a very young age uh, to not have a job ever again. But that was something that I noticed because in, in English literature and academia, you're often comparing things and you're reading a critique of a critique. So Shakespeare wrote this play and here's somebody's literary critique. And here is a critique of that person's critique and why they got it all wrong. And here's yet a third critique of why the first two people got it all wrong. You're going back and forth in and, and these endless circles. And at a certain point, I thought, I don't want to critique a critique of a critique and use as many big words as I possibly can to make myself sound smarter than the other people, which, forgive my crude language here, is nothing more than just a dick measuring contest put in, in different words. But then i thought to myself i'd rather be shakespeare i'd rather be the person who creates the play for the masses for use to get a laugh to get people to cry and that was a moment that my life and my brain profoundly changed i had a realization that this isn't the path that i want to go down i want to influence people directly um but in the case of science that next step isn't necessarily creative expression, but it could be thought of as entrepreneurship, building something tangible in the world. And that jump that you describe in your life is a jump that I'm very, very, very fascinated with. Anytime somebody makes it, anytime somebody takes anything and they say, I want to build something, that's sort of where this show kicks in and where my appreciation kicks in. So you noticed that there was a lot of theoretical uh, solutions to these there's a lot of understanding of what's going on so how did you go about making the transition from that theoretical lab understanding to okay let's build something in the real world that solves this problem and fast well,
0: well let me let me first take a little bit of issue with the with the sort of shakespeare analogy because sure. you know scientists aren't just critiquing no <laughs> I mean, not at all <laughs> the, the 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 scientific method is is fundamental to what we're doing, and we wouldn't be able to pursue this mission without all of the work, all of, all of the great work that has come before us in order to in order to pave the way. Uh, and so, this isn't this isn't saying anything negative about all of that work and about the scientists who've done it. It's about saying we actually need uh, we need additional things on top, we need an ecosystem. And there's a role here for uh, social entrepreneurs or environmental entrepreneurs like us to to play, to bring these ideas into practice. So, so, so let me give you an example. Um, the uh, when, when we looked at, well, let me just take a moment actually and um, explain coastal carbon capture and what we're doing. Because I think we're getting, a, getting far enough into this that now's probably that moment. Sure. So, what we do is we, uh, we have a nature-based solution for removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So there is a natural process called weathering, which has been removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere for literally billions of years. And this is what's kept the atmosphere in balance over geological time. The way it works is that when rain falls on uh, certain types of rocks, that actually uh, causes carbon dioxide to leave the atmosphere and enter the water where it's used by corals and shells in the form of calcium carbonate. And then eventually when those organisms die, they form marine sediment which sinks to the bottom of the ocean and hardens into limestone on the ocean floor. So this is nature's way of turning atmospheric carbon dioxide into rocks. Now, that's great, but it's a very slow process, which happens over geological time. So what we do with coastal carbon capture is accelerate that process. The way we do that is we take an abundant natural mineral called olivine, we grind it into sand, and we take that sand to coastal areas. Putting that sand in the water enables the ocean to do what it already does naturally, but faster. It enables the ocean to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and store it safely in the form of a molecule called bicarbonate, which you might be familiar with as baking, that's baking soda. soda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, and at the same time, this also reduces the acidity of the of the ocean. And as as everybody may be aware or may not be, ocean acidification is a major problem that we are also facing so the oceans are 30% more acidic than they were before the industrial revolution that's the 30%. equivalent of yeah that's the equivalent of pouring 16 Olympic swimming pools of battery acid into the oceans every minute for the last 100 years. Wow. So the oceans are suffering with this problem and reducing ocean acidity is something that we uh, that we, we really need to do uh, alongside removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere to mitigate the warming effects of climate change. So, uh, And so essentially in summary, what we actually need to do here is, we like to say, bring sand to the beach. So we're taking a natural <laughs> mineral, grinding it into sand, and bringing it to uh, bringing it to coastal areas.
1: So where is this olivine so, sourced from?
0: Uh, so it's found all over the world. It's actually um, it's actually one of the most abundant minerals uh, on the planet. Uh, there are deposits in, uh, in many many countries around the world. Currently, we're sourcing it from a deposit in Norway, uh, but as we hope to grow we expect to source it from many different places around the world in the future and there are deposits here domestically in the us as well okay and so to to sort of to sort of tie that back to the conversation we're having around the science versus the practice of this there was a lot of research into olivine whether it was looking at where is the olivine around the world or what are the theoretical carbon capture potential of olivine and 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 so on and so what what we did is came along and said, well, if we wanted to actually try this out, how would we do that? And we went deep into the science, but also into the practice. And we learned about an industry called coastal nourishment, which many of your watchers may be familiar with. So if you live near the coast, then you are probably already experiencing the effects of our changing climate. So sea levels are rising, and they are rising actually at an accelerating rate. We're seeing stronger storms and more and more coastal flooding. So this causes coastal erosion. And there's an entire industry that moves almost 60 million tons of sand around every year, just in the US, which is designed to protect coastlines, to replace eroded beaches, and to protect coastal homes, coastal habitats and coastal infrastructure against this flooding that is happening. So we learned about this industry and said to ourselves, well, we want to bring sand to coastal areas and there's already an industry that's doing this. So why don't we partner with that industry? Why don't we find the practitioners in that industry who care about the environment and who want to do something about the climate and work with them to bring the Vesta sand to these projects. And so that's an example of something where as environmental entrepreneurs, we saw an opportunity, we saw a way to actually try to make this happen. And we've now done that. And our first pilot deployment is, is live as of July uh, in the Hamptons in, in New York, where we added olivine sand to a existing planned beach renourishment project.
1: And so, where were they getting this sand before? Just anywhere? Was there any thought into where it came from or what type of sand it was?
0: Most coastal protection projects use locally dredged sand, and that's what happened in this case. So, actually, in the town of Southampton, there what there is or near the town of Southampton, there is a um, there is a harbour which was silting up, and so what the local community decided to do was dredge sand from the harbour inlet in order to ensure that it would remain navigable and use that sand to re-establish a beach that had been eroded away. Mm. So they did that, and at the same time, or immediately afterwards, they added... Olivine sand, with our support, to the project in order to make the world's first human-made carbon-negative beach.
1: So this olivine sand, it goes on the beach, not in the water. It goes
0: on dry land. Uh, it needs to be in the water okay. to do its to do its work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, in this case, we put it on the lower part of the beach so it would actually get wet. In general, though, this is this is not the way that we plan to deploy in the future. The most effective way to perform coastal carbon capture is to, is to put the sand into the near shore environment in the water rather than uh, on the beach itself.
1: So what is the property of this olivine sand that allows it to do this? Is it porous like a filter? What, what is so special about the sand that it does things that other sand doesn't, this mineral?
0: Well, so it is, it is a so-called basic mineral or an alkaline mineral Uh, And so what that means is when it's placed into the water uh, it actually gradually dissolves in the water. And this is true for all minerals. It just so happens that olivine sand when it dissolves, first of all it dissolves more rapidly than other minerals, and second when it dissolves it adds alkalinity to the seawater. And that alkalinity not only counteracts the acidity problem that we talked about before But it also shifts the balance uh, of, of something called the carbonate system in the ocean water. And what that does is helps the ocean to take up carbon dioxide from the atmosphere.
1: That's so fascinating. What a crazy but cool idea. And obviously, anybody who's been paying attention to the environment for the last several decades you read and hear about reefs. The Great Barrier Reef is under attack. There won't be coral anymore. Does this mitigate
0: any of that, or is that just a warming water temperature issue? So, as as you may have seen in the in the headlines, the climate news just keeps getting worse and worse. Of course. And we're experiencing. You know, this is not some future crisis. We have over 30 million people in in Pakistan who've been displaced with uh, with the flooding. You know, I live on the West Coast uh, of the U.S. and we're seeing forest fires get worse and worse every year. So this is very much a crisis today. Uh, We've also seen that the the forecasts are that we'll have no coral reefs left by the end of the century. And that's due to a combination of the warming of the ocean and the acidification of the ocean. So um, what, what we're doing here addresses addresses both problems Um, ultimately what uh, ultimately what we are hoping to do is bring this to a level of scale where we can actually contribute to addressing the problem on a planetary level now there's a long road to go between here and there we just deployed our first pilot earlier this year and it's extremely important to us to do this in a gradual and ethical way so that means starting very small <clears throat> and growing gradually and at every stage doing rigorous science to make sure that uh, we really understand the risks the impacts and the benefits of coastal carbon capture so we don't want to we don't want to rush that process but at the same time we, we want to move as quickly as as possible responsibly. So as a as on a planetary level, we'll need to be removing about 10 billion tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere per year by mid-century in order to avoid the worst effects of climate change. and and our goal is to contribute a meaningful portion of that.
1: Well, you mentioned that olivine is one of the most abundant minerals on Earth, and you are on one of the largest unbroken coastlines uh, on Earth. Is there enough olivine, do you think, theoretically, to
0: tackle all of the west coast of the United States, for example? (laughs) There is, there is a very large amount of olivine, uh, perhaps a trillion tons, of of olivine um, in in on the planet. Um, so the amount of total olivine available is is ultimately very large, and and would be sufficient to uh, to meet to meet our objectives. There's also a lot of coastline in the world uh, you know both in the US and, and abroad and actually um, you know one of the uh, one of the things that we like about this approach is that this is applicable in many different countries around the world um, you know when when people talk about carbon dioxide removal, often there's sort of a often there's sort of a skepticism around well you know if you're building this factory that sucks carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere where are you going to do that and who is going to benefit economically from that where are the jobs going to be created uh, because a lot of that activity happens in uh, in wealthy countries but one of the nice things about this is that there are many countries around the world that have significant coastline and significant olivine deposits, which are lower income countries and which are great candidates for employing coastal carbon capture. So the, of course, the carbon dioxide benefits accrue to the entire planet, but the economic benefits of this activity can accrue to the coastal communities uh, in lower income countries where we actually deploy.
1: Well, this brings up an interesting point because we've featured a few. Di- I've featured a few different people on this show, who are attempting different ways of capturing carbon at scale. Some of them are more machine-based or a device that requires electricity. Do you feel that all of these things must work together? Do you feel that, based on your research, that this more natural approach is more sustainable or going to be better for the long term? Is it all? pieces of the same puzzle or is it that we should really be considering this approach over some
0: others we will definitely need uh multiple approaches there is no one thing we need to do there's no there is no one thing that is sort of the magic bullet here that will just solve the problem uh for us um and that's and that's i think in large part due to the sheer scale of this of this problem that we've created for ourselves, um, so we need to be uh, we need to be investigating multiple approaches, and and what we need to do is we need to make sure that the resources go to the approaches that are proven to be the most effective, uh, and a a key thing there is one key thing is permanence, so. Um, so there are there are some approaches which uh, result in carbon removal but uh, are not permanent and probably the probably the worst example of that is is uh, avoided deforestation so if you pay somebody to promise not to cut down a forest for let's say a year then what you're you're only doing you're only creating a single year of carbon benefit and you may not even be creating that benefit because it's hard to prove that they would otherwise have cut down uh, that forest Um, and of course even forestation projects or reforestation or afforestation projects have challenges because as we see um, in the western us those projects tend to uh, literally go up in smoke so permanence is a very important criterion. It's a very important factor that we need to be considering when looking at any form of carbon dioxide removal. Beyond that, we need to be looking at how much it costs uh, and how and how scalable it is, and also whether there are co-benefits. Um, and so co-benefits are other advantages of of a particular carbon dioxide removal approach. So, for example, with coastal carbon capture, we have the reduction in ocean acidity, we may have coastal resilience benefits by adding sand to coastal systems. Um, And then you also have to look at the other resources that are required in order to do uh, carbon dioxide removal. So if you have a method which is engineered to remove carbon dioxide from the air but it requires very large amounts of energy input well, you might say well that, that energy is going to come from renewables but you still need massive investment in new renewables in order to uh, in order to power those. And so and and so by harnessing the power of the oceans with coastal carbon capture we massively reduce the energy input required to remove co2 from the atmosphere relative to uh, some other methods and so that's one of the things that uh, makes us excited about it yeah because Another you thing do this one use. time
1: and then it's done you get <laughs> the olivine where it needs to go and then that's the end of that portion right
0: yeah exactly we we move the olivine to coastal areas and then it gradually does its work and doesn't require any maintenance you no know, it's it's sort of a quote unquote set it and forget it solution which means that you know once we put the olivine in the ocean it does its work and the the other uh, benefit here is actually coastal carbon capture gets more efficient uh, in warmer waters so as the ocean warms and as the ocean becomes more acidic which it inevitably is going to do with current emissions, coastal carbon capture actually becomes gradually more efficient over time. Do you have a? I think the a, other. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I just think the other thing I was going to say is you, you also have to think about um, other resources like land use. So um, what, what we do doesn't require any, any use of land, doesn't require any use of fresh water. Um, you know, when you think about scaling a solution, bringing a solution to sort of planetary scale, you need to consider you need to consider all of the resources that it takes in order to do that.
1: Do you think that there's ever a reality where, in the next fifty to a hundred years, we can convince people to stop dumping Olympic-sized swimming pools worth of battery acid into the ocean every minute?
0: Well, that's. I'm glad you brought that up because <laughs> because um, when when we think about what we need to do as a society to get ourselves out of this this worsening mess that we're in, uh, we need to reduce emissions. And we also need to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. And so um, this this is not a problem that can or should be solved by continuing to emit and also removing carbon dioxide, uh, aside from the ethical problems with that, that would also just be very inefficient. There are a lot of ways to reduce emissions, which actually are very low cost. And so that that should be the first thing that we do, uh, is reduce emissions. But at the same time, we also need carbon dioxide removal, partly because there's over a trillion tons of excess CO2 in the atmosphere, and that's not going away. You know, there, there's an analogy that's been often quoted, which is which is a bathtub. So if you imagine you have a bathtub that's half full of water, and then you turn on the tap and allow it to overflow, then turning off once it's full, turning off the tap, you don't expect the water to go down. It's just going to stay full. So we need carbon dioxide removal in order to uh, take all of the excess carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere because it's going to be continuing to contribute to warming while it's still there and then there are also so-called hard to abate industries um, things like aviation where there's you know it's it, it, unless you unless you, believe that somehow people are going to stop flying then there's going to be continued emissions from certain industries and it makes sense for those industries and the consumers paying for those services to pay to remove carbon dioxide permanently from the atmosphere to offset the contributions of those of those activities
1: Mm, that makes sense so for you personally and With the concession on my part that science majors are generally better than English majors, I will concede that point, less wasting their time. (laughs) Um, So when you personally decided to take this issue on, how did you begin? Because I I find that that transition is often glossed over. We often skip ahead to say they, they had an idea and then boom, suddenly they got their first millions in funding. Describe to me those early days. How was it in the beginning when you said this is something I want to do? Was it scary? Was it difficult? What were the first steps that you took?
0: Yeah, it was. It was difficult. It's always difficult to start something new, um, and it's something that I have. Something. Something that I. I feel that I've done in my career is I've done quite a few sort of different things, you know, from working in financial services to working in digital identity, being a management consultant where I've worked worked for companies in quite a few different industries. And you know, in some ways, there have been times in my career where I felt like I wasn't being focused enough and where, you know, if I just picked one thing and got really good at that, then, you know, I would have um, had an easier time of it, perhaps. Um, but at the same time, by constantly challenging myself to learn new industries, I think that becomes a skill uh, in of itself. And and so when when I started to get, Involved when I started to let's just cut that for a second. Um, Yeah, so um, I guess do I need to go back all the way, or can I can I just jump into the middle? You can just jump into the middle. We'll just splice it. It's fine. When I started to get involved with carbon dioxide removal, the reason for that was because you know I had I had always actually wanted to do something about climate change but when i graduated from university there wasn't really a sort of a climate tech industry yet and so there weren't opportunities at least none that i could identify to actually do that Uh, but having had a 20-year career doing a number of different things i took a step back and, and said to myself well if not now when i mean this is the biggest problem that the planet is facing and now is surely the time for me to see if I can devote my energies to helping to address it. And so I was very motivated by that. And so there was a lot of hard times at the beginning where we didn't know and, and I had amazing co-founders and together where we, where we just didn't know where to start or how to, how to figure this out. But we always came back to this, this motivation that you know, we had to figure it out. Uh, because, you know, the, the planet needs that. And, um, you know, so uh, early days we were doing a lot of desk research and reaching out to scientists in the field and, frankly speaking, encountering some scepticism there. Like, who are you guys to be doing this? Uh, but we just try to be humble and we try to learn as much as possible. Uh, and as as we did so, we gradually got ourselves to the point where we had just a little bit of credibility and where we could actually begin to raise some money uh, in small amounts to begin with and hire scientists, again, just one or two to begin with, who actually shared our ethos that they wanted to jump out of academia and into a more mission-driven world. And and from there, it, it gradually snowballed.
1: That reminds me of one of the things that I really enjoyed about reading your bio And this is something that a lot of people struggle with, and God knows I've struggled with it in my own life, where you mentioned 20 years of a different career. You were doing something completely different. And I know that a lot of people experience that varying ages. They could be young, and they're wondering what to do with their life, or they could be in the middle of a career that doesn't really fulfill them, and they want to make a change. They just don't know what to. And a lot of times when we're in that moment, it feels like we're wasting time. It feels like our clock is ticking out because we're very aware of the finite amount of time that we have on this planet and that we want to use it to the best of our ability. So during those 20 years, I'm sure it doesn't feel good. It feels like something in the back of my mind tells me that I'm not doing what I'm meant to be doing or I'm not pursuing my highest abilities here. But one of the things that I liked that I read was that your bio said that it was the skills of managing teams and of getting results that you learn from the business world that now directly applied to you doing this new thing more effectively. So looking back on it, it wasn't wasted time. It might have felt like it at the time, but now you're able to use those skills and to lead this company, which is what you need to do in order to make this change happen. So how do you feel about that period now that you're on the other side of it versus when you were in it?
0: I've always chosen opportunities where I felt like I would learn a lot and where I appreciated the people that I was working with. But at the end of the day, when you when you come to work and you are you know spending let's face it more time working than probably anything else you're doing uh, to me it's it's really all about the people and uh, you know do you feel like they have values that align with your own and do you feel like they can teach you something and so i've, I've always chosen opportunities that enable me to enable me to learn and to grow and you know during that time I felt like that was happening, and felt like I was learning things and was um, and was, you know, enjoying the the work. And at the same time, as you suggested, there's always this nagging feeling of, you know, how much does this really, how much does this really matter? Even when you know working for companies that I thought were doing something, you know, something positive, there's still this huge sort of lurking thing out there that I could be doing something that's, that's, that's more meaningful. and uh, and so, you know, how do I look at that period now? Well, I'm very grateful for it. Um, you know, very grateful for the, the skills I learned and for the, um, for the experiences that I have had. And, and, you know, I, I would encourage people to, I would encourage people to, to think about, uh, to think about the, so now I guess when I come to work, uh, every day, I get so much, of my energy to do this from the feeling that this is important and of course that pervades throughout the team and everybody comes to work with this the shared passion the shared mission you know it reduces the amount of difficulty and and sort of conflict in the organization because we've all really got the same goal and we care about that and we think it matters deeply and you know, when I, when I sort of look out there in the workforce, I see the majority of people who have not made that leap into doing something that's, that's really, you know, mission-driven in, the way that, in, a, in a way that's going to, or at least has the potential to positively impact the world. And I encourage people who are on the other side of that, that fence to really think about what it could be like if you were to, you know, apply your skills to something that you care deeply about.
1: And to that end, do you feel a greater sense of pressure? Because I could imagine that somebody who hasn't done that might feel that being under the gun, the cosmic gun of we need to solve this problem quickly could be a debilitating level of pressure or stress. Although my own experience talking to people such as yourself indicates that the opposite is true knowing that there is a very real timeline how do you manage that stress does it just feel good to be working on a solution or do you feel ugh the weight of the world is on my shoulders what wins
0: out it's it's a really great question the the the, there's there's additional pressure from knowing how important this is Uh, and at the same time there is so much so much energy that comes from the importance of the work and the, and the feeling that, you know, the feeling that this is the thing that I should be doing. You know, in, in previous jobs, there's always been that nagging doubt of, is this really what I want to be spending my time on? Whereas in this job, I I don't have any of that feeling. I feel absolutely that I'm living in line with my values, that I um focusing my energy on creating a positive impact in the world. And so I would say that the balance between that and the additional sort of pressure from feeling like, you know, we, we are, you know, our, our actions matter so much more, I would say the balance is more toward the, the energy and centeredness that I feel from, uh, from having this opportunity to work on what I see as the world's most challenging issue.
1: What a beautiful sentiment and very well phrased. I love that. And that does seem to be the pattern and why I pursue this show because that is what you hear and that energy is palpable and the shift is also palpable. There's something about the frequency that people such as yourself are on when they have made that shift and you can sense it. It gives me goosebumps every time to be perfectly honest and that's why I love hearing about it Uh, because something... Palpable has changed in the energy and the way that people work. And that's what I think we all want. But many people don't know what it is that's going to give them that feeling. But I think we all want that desire for alignment, that desire for centeredness. That's something that I've personally have wanted at many points in my life. And usually when I've felt at my lowest in the darker moments, it is often a feeling of not being aligned with something. And staying awake at night, there's this nagging feeling of what isn't right or what isn't clicking. And I think for people like ourselves, that comes twofold. It's, am I using my own skills and talents to the best of my ability? And also what is this external thing that I'm working on? And for me, when I feel bad, it's a combination of both of those two things. Like if I help somebody as a marketer with my company, if I help somebody sell more cigarettes, I can get paid a lot. But then I know that I'm helping something that's harming the planet, not helping it. And if I, as a creative and expressive person, am doing very boring, mundane things where I don't get to create or express myself, then I also feel low because I'm not being true to my own set of talents and uh, abilities. So it's this magical thing that we all want when those all line up. So it's I have a scientific background and I have a managerial background. I'm using science. I'm using my managerial skills to build a company. And it's also for this external thing, which I deeply value and which I believe that we all need. And if there's one change that I wish that I could get from doing this, it would be to inspire more people to see what alignment looks like. And to understand that it's possible for themselves. And I think your story is a perfect example of how that can happen. And also after years, because people do feel many times, if I didn't get my calling right, if I didn't make my first million, my first year out of college, somehow I failed. Somehow I missed the boat. It's too late. But we've seen that that is not the case so for those people who are still having those nagging doubts, what do you think the one action they could take might be to take a step towards finding what that
0: alignment might be for themselves? Quit your job. Um, okay. You know, it's um, no, I mean, it, it's it's you know, I want to acknowledge how challenging it is, um, you know. Uh, we live in a capitalist society. People are very focused on money. You know, if you're working for a, if you're working as a cog in the machine of a big tech company, getting paid well, then it's a, you know, it's it's a it's a scary thing to consider the idea that you might want to, you know, go work somewhere else for half the salary. Um, and you know, people ask themselves the question: Well, effectively, why why should I? you know pe- effectively pay to be working on something you know mission driven you know when i can sort of have all of this nice stuff uh, if i don't do that and so i want to acknowledge that that's a real challenge and i'm not i'm not Judging it, that is the society that we live in. That is the system that we that we live in. Um, but you know, when I when I say uh, when I say quit your job, um, I'm I'm actually you know only half joking because I do think that um, if you have the um, you know if you have the resources to do so, and not everybody does, uh, but if you do, then actually taking a little bit of time off and and taking a step back and really taking, taking enough time, you know, at least six weeks to reflect on what your values are, what's important to you and what you want to bring to the world can be enough to create an internal shift that, that says there's something else that's more important that I want to, you know, want to at least explore. And I think once you've made that decision, uh, then, you know, we are, humans have evolved to be very resourceful and uh, we can learn new things. And so I think the thing that holds us back most often is is the process of making that decision to take a leap into a different direction rather than our ability to actually learn the new information, the new skills and so on.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I completely agree. And that brings me to another question, which is, When you have made that decision internally, as you did, obviously there is a lag period. There's a gap between when you make that decision and when any kind of results, like you said, in the beginning, people were skeptical. They weren't sure you got a lot of, who are you to do this? And it was only over time that you built up credibility. And in that time before you have credibility or momentum, it's scary, right? So when you're doing things that per definition, not a lot of people are doing, and this is a question I ask myself a lot, When you're not following the often path, when you're not following the herd, there are a lot of people per definition who do not understand what you're doing or who may not agree with what you're doing as much as we'd love to say hey, I invented the cure for cancer, celebrate me. It's uh, uh, That's just not what happens because people say, oh, I'm not going to inject that. The government's trying to inject uh, nanorobots and, and control my brain. So even the most positive exploration and discovery can be met with skepticism. Even breakthroughs can be met with open hostility. So how have you experienced having this great idea? How has the world responded um, to that idea since you founded it?
0: well so uh, first i want to say this wasn't my idea um you know it was on the shoulders of giants so to speak yeah Yeah. it was actually actually the planet's idea (laughs) Right. right i mean this is this is one of the nice things about this um and then beyond that uh you know this was this this was scientists you know who developed this idea starting in the 90s and so you know i didn't have you know, really a new idea here and, and also, you know, I have a whole team of people that I work with, including my co-founders who uh, all decided to embark on this on this together. Um, but, you know, in terms of how the world has responded, um, you know, I think, I think there's, there's a couple of things to say here. I think, I think the first is that, you know, with, with something new, there will always be skeptics and a lot of that is healthy and listening to the skeptics when there is actual constructive criticism really helps us to sharpen our ideas Um, and of course sometimes there are just naysayers and and i think what you have to do is um you have to uh you have to sort of to some extent just sort of ignore some of the you know the non-constructive naysayers who just say well you know carbon dioxide removal doesn't make sense or you guys are you know, you guys are just crazy. Um, you know, that that kind of stuff, you frankly just speaking just have to ignore it and take, uh, take. you know, choose who you listen to, right? There's that saying, I think, that, you know, you become the average of your, I think, six closest friends. And so that's something that I think about a lot just in, in my life is is really making sure that I spend time with people who I want to be like because I will become like them. And so, you know, the analogy there is maybe just listening to listening to supporters to get some motivation and then also listening to constructive criticizers. And so, then the second thing I'll say, say about all this and more of a direct answer to your question, how have people responded? There's been a very wide spectrum of how people have responded. You know, We have uh, people who uh, simply seem to want to criticize us and we have people who are, huge cheerleaders and supporters and you know some of the investors or all of the investors in our company really fit into that category i was speaking with one of our investors yesterday and giving him an update on what was going on and talking about what you know what was happening next and how to talk about that with with future investors and he was just saying how you know this is incredibly exciting and you know this is my favorite company and you know what you guys are doing is is amazing and and so we really have a very Broad, uh, a very broad spectrum of opinions. Um, of course, the one of the one of the opportunities and challenges for us is how Vesta and coastal carbon capture get written up in in the mainstream press. We've actually had a decent amount of coverage, and that, that. Is also varied. Yeah, that's also oh, varied. interesting. Um, varied
1: press coverage,
0: public. Yeah, I hmm. mean. You know, there's 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 a lot of um there's a lot of sort of baseline skepticism about the idea of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. I think instinctively people see that as messing with with the planet Angering, systems. Yeah. You know, shouldn't we just reduce emissions? And you know, the answer thirty years ago was yes. You know, we should have reduced emissions. Right. <laughs> and if we had done that then we would not have needed carbon dioxide removal. But we are where we are. And there's but no the bathtub's
1: point. already full, folks, and it's not getting any lower. Somebody's got to exactly. open the drain.
0: Exactly.
1: Well, you, to that point, you have received a number of very encouraging accolades from important organizations. Obviously, the investment has come in in, in the millions so far. So there are many encouraging signs as a business from what I've seen so clearly, obviously, the trend is, is positive for both you and the organization and the business. And the sky looks very bright from where I'm standing for what you're going to be able to achieve in the next 10, 20, 30 years. So do you feel that this is the kind of thing that you could work on for the rest of your career? Do you think this is it? I'm going to keep focusing on this. Or do you think I'm going to build this up to a certain point and then maybe move on to another project?
0: This is a very long-term effort, uh, and and you know I, am, you know, I'm working on it for the long term, um, you know, and and uh, you know just just to sort of tie that a little bit to uh, the point you're making about about <clears throat> you know our prospects. I think unfortunately the news about about what's happening with the climate just keeps getting worse and worse, yeah. and as that news gets worse and worse, the need for solutions. Uh, gets greater and greater and you know that's why there's more and more investment uh, flowing into uh, climate solutions and so I feel that unfortunately we are in a position where uh, the the level of interest in what we're doing is going to uh, is going to increase exponentially as the problem and and the headlines get worse um, but I'll also say that we are still at the relatively early stages of this. We just did our first pilot deployment. We're measuring the results from that right now. There are all sorts of things that that could go wrong. And we are taking a very sober and rigorous approach and saying, you know what, we need to do really good science here because First of all, just from an ethical perspective, you know this is something that we need to make sure we get right. And also from a overall public acceptance point of view uh, and acceptance in the scientific community. If we don't do this carefully and rigorously and report transparently on the results, then there's really no point doing this at all. And so we are embarking on a, you know, a a, a gradual process. And we hope that it will work, of course, and we have a mission to make it work. Um, But at the same time, we're open to whatever the results show. And if those results are positive, we will gradually scale up and I hope eventually bring it to a very large scale and have an impact on a planetary level. And if we can do that, then uh, I'll be, you know, I'll be uh, here continuing to lead the ship.
1: Fantastic. Well, We're approaching the end of our episode here, and I can say after talking with you for an hour, my respect and admiration for you has only deepened. I wholeheartedly support what you are doing. I think it sounds like a fantastic idea. And any time that we can play into natural solutions, which you have done, I feel that is a win, win, win. And the fact that there are a couple of different knock-on effects from this that are all positive, solving multiple issues at the same time is incredibly encouraging. And the fact that it is, a, to borrow that great phrase from the Showtime Grill infomercial, a set it and forget it <laughs> solution, is what is so exciting about this. Because it is this new breed of green or social entrepreneurship or eco-friendly solutions do seem to take into account what nature already does. And those, to me seem the most elegant and the most beautiful solutions whereas pumping a bunch more plastic crap at something seems (laughs) maybe like it will work but it's not quite as elegant as let's work within these natural processes or hey earth has already been doing this we're just going to facilitate that very cool so as is always the case with the end of every episode i like to leave the last word to you so whatever action whatever you'd like to promote Um, now is the time, but again, my heartfelt thanks for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing how you think about this stuff.
0: Well, th- thank you so much. I really, really appreciate coming on, and, and appreciate everybody listening and watching. And I would just say um, uh, to uh, to check out our website. Uh, we're at Vesta.Earth. Earth. Uh, check it out, learn more about it. Feel free to engage with us and join our mailing list and and so on. Because we we'd love to keep everybody up to date. And you know, if you want to come work for us, then you know, please please do reach out.
1: Fantastic, Tom. Well, this has been an excellent episode. And with that, the official podcast is over.